0: And the best part? You can try it yourself with their 7-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Pastor Sabaton, and uh, you're listening to Talking Metal.
2: Welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal podcast, home of all things hard rock and heavy metal. I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. Now, let's get things started with the Talking Metal theme song, written by Rob Halford, Metal Mike, and Roy Z. <laughs> Hey, this is Mark Striegel of Talking Metal. We have two great interviews on today's episode. Stephen Wit, who wrote a book, and we're gonna we're gonna talk to uh, to Steve about that shortly. It's a uh, it's a great listen. Stay tuned for that. And then also we have an interview with Parr, the bassist of the band Sabaton, and they are out on tour right now. And we are hopefully gonna have this episode up in time to promote the remaining dates here in the states. Sabaton will be in Texas on May 18th. Tampa, Florida, the 20th. North Carolina, May 21st. may 22nd in maryland make sure you catch these guys they have been doing it a while now and they really have some great music out and my co-host on this episode joe becht is back Am I saying your name right joe joe becht right
3: yes becht
4: yeah Be- although um it, it, it is in some parts of germany pronounced best but i won't oh, go okay. into the semantics there no right. becht is right. the way it's been pronounced yeah great thanks for having me
2: on mark i really hey. appreciate it thanks yeah. for um coming back on you grew up in the the chicago area and experienced yes. the the metal scene there which is something i kind of experienced because i i lived there you know from eighth to 12th grade back in the 80s although i i was never like involved like going to the the clubs and and seeing the up up and comer bands like like you were. Well, I shouldn't say that. I used to go to the Thirsty Whale because they had right. all age nights. And did you did you frequent that place much? Yes, we
4: went to the Thirsty Whale often. Uh, we would. I remember a triple bill. It was uh, two of my favorite local bands, uh, Trouble and Z Trope, and right. I think the third right. band was Thrust. Okay. And uh, yeah, it was a great show. And I, yeah, there there'd be some really good bands that would come through the Thirsty Whale. Now it's just the gas station. The uh the hot dog stand still there though um, I did? okay
2: well yeah. let me throw some some band names at you that I used to go sure. see like as a fifteen like even I don't know I, I could have been like even fourteen the first time I went there because they used to have these all age shows right now, were those six may, maybe I'm now maybe I'm wrong were the were the all age shows sixteen and up or, or
4: you know what they, I can't remember plus yeah. I was you know I was over eighteen so it really didn't matter to me right but uh, right. yeah
2: oh, I. I, I think they were all age. I think they were so. Anyways, uh, I I saw Holland there many many
3: Holland, times. Yes,
4: uh, yeah, and I know you played. Uh, you
2: mentioned Holland a few episodes back. Yeah, they were a great band, signed to Atlant, Atlantic, I believe, and they they were this band that sold a ton of albums in the Chicago suburbs, but nowhere else in the world. <laughs> it was like so they got dropped, even though Correct. they did very very well. In, in especially the, the suburbs of, of Chicago, and yes. they put out just a, a great record called Little Monsters. I believe it's up on Spotify. It, it, I don't. I think it, the compression on the Spotify and iTunes version was not great. It sounds much better if you can track down the the old vinyl. But I used to see them play. I saw them numerous times. Uh, other bands I saw Hammeron. I saw Hammer On play right, at so- least three or four times.
4: All right, so let me tell you about Hammer-On. Uh, okay. The lead guitar player was my one of my best friends in school, uh, Carlo Basilli. and right. he is now one of the foremost flamenco guitarists in the world. So he tours the world playing flamenco guitar, oh Spanish-style wow. guitar, yeah. So he progressed from the metal, but I talked to him occasionally. He's still in the Chicago area. He plays show, the Spanish shows uh, all over the world and here in Chicago. I think he plays a couple times a week at University of Chicago's uh, new hospital to uh, just for the patients there. But yeah. And then he runs some hot dog stands, ironically, too, in the city. But yeah, I knew Hammer on really well. I used to watch him practice in their studio on North Avenue.
2: Wow. I loved that band. I I remember seeing him at least twice at the Thirsty Whale and then at some rock festival. Which it was like them and uh, a, a, another band that I liked called Paradox. I don't you remember that. Paradox, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. And they, they, it was the record release party for. It was like this, like mini arena. I don't know where the hell it was. I have no idea, but it was like a record release party for this album that came out called The Class of 1985, which Paradox were on there, and I believe Hammer on had a song called Marching Off to War or yes. Marching Onward, or Marching, yeah, mar- I think it was like the lyrics went Marching Onward, Marching Off to War, or something. Yeah. Um, I still have that in my record collection somewhere. Wow. And uh, yeah, that, that was that was a lot of fun. I, I saw Paradox, I believe, also at the Thirsty Whale. I didn't see them as much as, I think I only saw them like twice, but uh, another band I saw at the Thirsty Whale. And I don't know how I got into these guys, but somehow I ended up with a cassette of theirs, Damien Thorne. Do you remember those Damian guys?
4: Damien Thorne, yeah, that's yeah. definitely, now I'm going to ask you, do you remember a band called War Cry?
2: Name sounds familiar, but I, I honestly,
4: they were realize. really good, in fact, I, I, you know, the singer Rich, lives in Hammond, you know, which is, borders the south side of Chicago, okay. Hammond, Indiana, he li- I believe he lives in that area, I talked to him a few years ago, I, I, I'd like to reconnect with him, because he has some pretty good stories, but, uh, yeah, they they kicked ass. I saw them on a triple bill, actually, with triple um, – it was Twisted Sister, Queensryche, when they had the EP out, and War Cry was the first band that played. And that was up at um, – in Wheeling at that bar, and I'm blinking on the name right now. But, yeah, they, 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 all these bands are bringing back lots of memories. Yeah. My, Go ahead, I'm No, my I, – I think – you know, Trouble – I really like Trouble. I love Trouble. Uh, especially when they had barry stern as their drummer now that connects me to probably my favorite band in the city which was z trope they they just kicked butt they were like a almost like a motorhead type band and they put they were very thrash and yeah. barry stern was an awesome singer and a uh, drummer and he passed away unfortunately and then when he played those two albums with trouble that really that, that was great stuff It was produced by rick rubin
2: right yeah right yeah. and the other band i saw which i you know we're talking like 85 86 at this point um there there was uh, i remember my friend's drum teacher's band was playing this thing called Lombard fest in Lombard right. Illinois and we so
4: went I, I live in Downers Grove which is yeah. just south of Lombard okay
2: yeah so we went to we went to Lombard fest and uh the it was the first time I ever heard of this band, and they kind of got a little notoriety uh, a number of years later. I think they kind of transplanted to LA, and they were kind of mixed up with this other band, Damals, somehow, but they were called Diamond Rex. And, yes. And I saw them, and they had explosives on stage. It was the middle of the day. And there were like grandmas and, you know, baby strollers <laughs> and stuff yeah. at Lombard Fest. And these guys came out, you know, the full, the heels, you know, the very, very much of a early Motley Crue look. And, yes. and they had explosives blow up, blowing up on stage. I remember the singer saying, OK, we're done exploding. You can move a little closer to the stage now. And it was, it was, it was so yeah. bizarre. Yeah. This,
4: yeah, you're blowing my mind with all these bands. Now, a little bit later, were you into life, sex, death?
2: Yeah, but yeah, see, I moved from I moved from the area. I don't know what time, like what time frame that was, but I moved in in the day I graduated high school, 1987, and uh, then we'll wrap up the the personal old stories here and get to some sure. other stuff on the podcast. But I moved from from. Uh, Hinsdale, Illinois, where I lived the the right. day I graduated high school uh, and okay. moved to New Jersey. So that was 1987, I guess, Sure, what, like uh, yeah, June, so, June 87. So I don't know. The, life, sex, death. The, that was like early,
4: I'm thinking 89,
2: 90. Right. But, uh, you know who yeah. turned me on to them? Um, the guy who I started the show with, John Astronomy. He was a big fan of them. Like, And I remember in the early 90s when we both kind of – uh, ended up in in the New York area. He, he uh, we'd gone to school in Boston for a while, but he he loved those guys, and I feel like he knew the singer or something somehow. But but yeah, and they, I, I believe they played some shows with Ace. Actually, they may have even opened up for Ace. Does that sound right? Yeah,
4: they did a tour with uh, someone else. They were supposed to be on a bill with the Damn Yankees. Remember Poplar Creek up in Hawkins? Yeah. St- yeah, I saw I saw Maiden
2: be- and Accept there actually.
4: Right, they were supposed to be on a bill up there, and they got dropped. But um, I, I actually grew up a block away from their drummer Brian Horak okay. in okay. Berwyn, Illinois, and then the singer Stanley. He, you know, he he was like he had that gimmick like he was homeless, right? But he yep. played it to a T. I mean, because I saw them at the Thirsty Whale, and he like literally had body odor and yeah, wore tattered clothes and everything. But yeah, they, I I love that band. I love that album.
2: Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. And I've heard other people mention this body odor too, so that's funny. Yes <laughs> uh, um, excellent cool well let's let's get into let's get into this interview now you conducted this for talking metal, which I really appreciate thank you but um, let's let can you explain who this guy is and and what you guys are going to be talking about during the interview
4: Certainly so this all goes back to when I was on the show last time and it, you talked about the value of music and I just remembered, The you basically risked your life to ride your bike to Rose Records to buy albums,
2: and I I really did. And I know that sounds like, like, like when your parents are like, I used to walk 10 miles to school, but but it's it's, it's really freaking true. Like, trust
4: me, people, the the route he took, you don't want to ride your bike on that route, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, um right after that, I went out to Portland. Uh, my, my son plays baseball on a college on the West coast and he was up at playing Portland university. So we went on, that was our spring break. So I go into this, uh, the Powell's bookstore, it's world famous. It's the largest book store in the world. And, uh, you walk in, I walk in the first book I see is this, how music got free by Stephen Witt. And I had to pick it up because of our conversation. Yeah. And what I found in the book was a just an absolutely fascinating read. And they say truth is stranger than fiction. And in this case, it really is. And he explains basically how music became free, how the album went to the CD, the gentleman in Germany who invented the MP3 file and the struggles he went through the Doug Morris, who is the most powerful record executive in the world and how he rose from the ashes um, and became all powerful and kind of missed the boat on technology, but then later on garnered that technology to make even more money. And then uh, the most fascinating character I think is this guy. His name's Del Glover. He's a middle class guy and lives in a. He, he works in a polygram CD plant in North Carolina in the right. middle of no. And he winds up like s- stealing the CDs and releasing all this stuff to uh, these these uh, pirates out in the, uh, in, in the computer world. So it's pretty fascinating read. And that's, so I I thought I'd interview the guy because, uh, it's such a great book and it's not really, there's not a lot of hard rock or metal focused in there. He does mention physical graffiti, um, because of the beauty of, you know, the double album, which is a a lost art because now everything's so focused on the single with the iTunes and everything. But, um, the things that, you know, I, I don't want to get, too wordy here, but, um, you know, I, when I picked up the book, I thought for sure it would be really heavily in the Napster and right. he would talk about our Zulrich and his, his, uh, his, his, uh, you know, trying to go against Napster. That's not, Napster's barely mentioned in the book and Lars isn't mentioned at all. Wow. And it's interesting that the big turn of events wasn't the defeat of Napster it was the record company's inability to stop the MP3 player. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to give too much away, yeah. and I don't in the in the, in the interview because uh, it's a great read. And I want everybody to go out there and purchase the book, even though the author himself yeah. says, oh, you can steal it." I, I just I can't grasp that mentality, Mark. Right. I can't right. I can't grab stuff for free. I want to pay there's
2: i still uh, yeah i'm the same way and we must be idiots or something because you know it's like and we can talk about that after the interview but but right now let's 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 get into a little led zeppelin let's do something off of physical graffiti an album that you just mentioned what do you what do you want to do off of that record joe
4: Um, There's so many great
2: songs, but I just love The Rover, the second song in the album. Yeah, I mean, really, you could pick any song off of this record. It's so good. But here we go. A little Led Zeppelin here on Talking Metal, followed by Joe's interview with Stephen Witt. And again, he is the author of the book, How Music Got Free, here on Talking Metal.
4: Welcome to Talking Metal. I'm Joe Becht, reporting for Mark Striegel and Talking Metal. Today with me, I am interviewing the author, Stephen Witt, who wrote an amazing book called How Music Got Free, The End of an Industry, The Turn of the Century, and The Patient Zero of Piracy. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great Great to be here. here yeah I just i I just wanted to preface um, and I'll do it briefly uh, Mark and I had a discussion about the value of music and then coincidentally I was at a bookstore a world famous bookstore in Portland your book was up front and center and I had to pick it up because of our discussion and what the result of that was one of the best books I have read in recent memory um, Stephen go into. Uh, what led you to write this book
5: right so i am a musical uh pirate a serial music pirate going way back to the 90s and at one point in kind of the late 2000s i was looking over this enormous collection of mp3s that i had collected over about 15 or 16 years and i just asked myself how did all of this get here you now how did all this get from studio musicians to my hard drive? I think there's maybe an untold story there. And it's funny at the time I asked myself that question I was not established as a writer right. I'd never really published anything before. So it was kind of an insane project to take take that on. But I started investigating it and over the next it took 5 years to write. So over the next 5 years I found all this kind of fascinating information about the history of the mp 3 The history of the internet and the history of music piracy that hadn't really been covered anywhere before and in in 2015 the book finally came out now ironically of course you know i finished the book just as the phenomenon of music piracy sort of started to die out and be replaced by spotify and other streaming services but that actually was kind of nice because it allowed me it allowed me to just capture this 20-year slice of history where the music industry absolutely just was destroyed and replaced by this chaotic, free-form music distribution environment that was invented by teenagers, mad scientists, and smugglers.
4: Yeah, exactly. uh, all of whom who are characters in my book. Exactly, and, and I want to address the three top characters. Um, there's so yeah. much I want to go into. So, th- the first thing, well, let's let's start where I, you know, when I immediately picked up the book, I thought of it would you definitely talk about Napster and being mm-hmm. from you know a metal and hard rock fan, Lars Ulrich and yeah. his his, his sure. advocacy against Napster. That was barely, Lars isn't even mentioned in the book, and Napster is barely in the book as well. Correct.
5: That's correct, and that yes. was a conscious decision. That that part of the story is so well known, and one of the goals that I set for myself was to have the book contain as much original reporting. Underground reporting, unknown reporting, as as possible. You know, I think anyone who lived through that period remembers Lars and his and his battle against Napster. His, which he actually people think he failed, he actually succeeded. They they got Napster shut down, right? Uh, but that was a, a battle that they won in a larger war which they lost.
4: Exactly, uh, and you and you address that in the book. I, I don't want to be jumping around too much, but you actually address in the book how the. Victory over Napster really wasn't the thing that impacted the music industry as opposed to the victory for the MP3 player, correct? The victory for the MP3
5: player was really what ultimately sunk them. Uh, and we can go into that now, but it might be easier for the listener if we just started at the beginning with the story sure. about what the, what the MP3 was and where it came
4: from. Yeah, so you have three main characters. There's Carl uh, Heinz Brandenburg. He's, he's a genius... Right programmer from germany that invents the mp3 you have the most powerful record executive in doug morris and then you have a hard-working middle-class guy in north carolina named del glover who works in a cd factory and yeah to i'll you know just to end up on this before i you talk about this you know i read this book and i always go by truth is stranger than fiction there's times in the yeah. book where I had to like take pause and say, This is not a novel that Stephen <laughs> Witt wrote. This is this is real stuff. So so go ahead yeah. and go from there, yeah.
5: Well, I think yeah, there were so many amazing
4: details uh,
5: that really – because I thought I was writing a technical history, kind of, uh, you know, history of technology and maybe some kind of social history. It turned out, though, that there were just a few characters who propelled the whole thing forward, and, and none of them had ever really been written about before. The first one was Carl heitz Brandenburg, man who really made it all possible. He was the, he was the brains behind the MP3. And what had happened there was that, okay, so, you know, we're entering the compact disc era in the 80s and 90s. To the record executives and the musicians, those compact discs are inventory. They're selling it for a ton of money, right? But to a computer scientist, a compact disc looks inefficient and flawed. Those racks of CDs at the mall that we think of as like something we want to buy and own, from a computer science perspective, that's just a big array of inefficiently stored data. So what these guys had the idea to do, and this is back in the 80s, was to get all of the data off of those disks, put it into a centralized computer server, then you would call in literally on your telephone, punch in a number into some catalog, and then the song would come streaming back through the phone and you'd hang the phone up on your stereo and it would play through there. So this is something like we have this today. You know, this right. is how Spotify and Apple Music work right. now. But they were they were kind of the visionaries were seeing this happen 30 years ago. The sticking point, and what made it very difficult, is for that to work. The compact disc records uh, information at very high fidelity, something like over a million bits per second of of stereo sound. To get it to fit through a phone line, you have to get it down to about 128,000. So that's a compression ratio of almost 90%. Put that in layman's terms, you have to delete 90% of the information on the disk and still make it sound good. Now, that sounded like an impossible task when they first laid it out. There was no way you could do it. But Brandenburg, and he really was drawing both from insights in mathematics and deep insights into how the human ear actually worked. They were going into the anatomy of of how you hear things, and they were able, through years of work, four or five years of work, tens of thousands of man hours and millions of dollars in R&D spent, to finally come up with a working prototype that would compress music in this way. Ironically, they couldn't sell it. Once they made it, they couldn't get the record industries to sign on. Uh, And so they had this kind of brilliant piece of technology, but but nothing to do with it. So they posted it online for public download for free. And that's when the teenage kids in their bedrooms at the beginning of the home downloading era in 95 and 96 got a hold of it and started using it to
4: pirate songs. Okay. Yeah. So – Moving forward into this story, um, I want to go to Del Glover. Now it's interesting, interesting because um, when Mark, who Mark Striegel, who is the uh, creator and host of Talking Metal, you know he discussed, he, and me too. We would, you know, we, we'd lift, we would. He literally risked life and limb to go buy the album. He'd ride his bike to a record store. <laughs> You know, you'd ride your bike and save your money and cut lawns to go to the record store to buy these giant albums. Sure. And the artwork was beautiful and there was value there. But, you know, that being said, um, I do enjoy having my entire music collection in the palm of my hand that I could just plug in my car. But anyway, going to Del Glover now, um, he worked at a CD factory. And I'm getting that because there's guys out there say, oh, yeah, well, the album, I, I prefer even the CD, the album. The CD played a big part in this whole music piracy and uh, movement, correct? Huge, huge. The thing that people say about the music industry is that they screwed up the
5: transition to the internet era. And that is true, but one of the reasons that that happened is they were really the first industry to go all digital. The compact disc was really ahead of its time. Uh, For it to come out in the early 80s, it's still kind of extraordinary. They were taking everything. Now we think of everything as being digitized, right? But it was the first real home consumer media product that was all digital. And back then, they kind of didn't have the foresight to put any kind of copyright protection mechanism on it. And so it turned out they were just – once you bought the CD, there was nothing preventing you from lifting all of the information off of it. Uh, The only problem was that at the time it was introduced, the CD was so big uh, relative to the size of of you know the mo- dial-up modem line or a hard drive you know with less than a gigabyte on it back in the back in the 90 s right So they didn't see what was coming because you know it was 20 or thirty years down the road before the information on a CD could be easily lifted off. But the pirates saw it coming. Yeah. and so what they realized the way that the piracy underground worked, it was called the scene. It was this network of guys who infiltrated the supply chains of different entertainment uh, industries and leaked stuff out. And these were actually organized gangs in the scene that would do this. They would form these kind of loosely affiliated digital crews that would hang out in chat channels and say, hey, I think my friend works at like a record store or my friend is a music journalist or my friend works at a – you know can get an Oscar screener for us early – And if we get that ahead of time, we'll be able to digitize it and put it on the Internet uh, before the music, before the album or before the movie even comes out. And so this became kind of the holy grail of the underground piracy scene, infiltrating the music industry supply chain and leaking stuff out earlier and earlier and earlier. And eventually, as I reveal in my book, they got the ultimate mole, the ultimate inside man was a guy named Dell Glover who actually worked at a compact disc manufacturing plant. And his job was to take the discs and put them uh, into the packaging material. So he literally had them at his fingertips uh, yeah. weeks and, and sometimes months ahead of their release dates. And the way he did now it, he I don't want to wanna, out...
4: I don't give too, <laughs> way, too much away, but the way he did it was absolutely fascinating. Right. And, been,
5: yeah. So he had to it, smuggle this yeah. material out right. of the
4: plant. And I won't
5: reveal too much about how he did that, but it involved belt buckles and uh, containers of ramen noodles.
4: Uh. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the fact that his motive for leaking these CDs wasn't really, it was monetarily uh, based, but it wasn't the fact, he wasn't making the money on the, on the music. Either And I know, again, I don't want like to give too so much well, away, but yeah, it, his, his whole business model and what he did on the side was absolutely fascinating as well. Right. Well,
5: uh, you know, so the way that this piracy underground worked is there was actually an ethos. There was a pirate's code that you weren't supposed to make money off leaking this stuff. It really was supposed to be a, a, a network of trade. Now, they did that partly because, um, you know, there was actually some kind of countercultural ethos in these groups. And they also did it because it reduced their criminal liability if they ever got caught. You know, if you're caught bootlegging CDs as a massive for-profit operation, that's a big penalty. You will go to jail. If you're caught trading them online with no cash involved, it's harder to convince a prosecutor or the FBI or especially a jury – that you should go to jail for a long time. And that ended up being a very important distinction uh, in, the, in the group that uh, Dell Glover joined, which was called rapid neurosis. They had a really strict policy that the leaks were not to be sold, that they were not to be monetized in any way, uh, and that instead it was kind of a, a community of people who shared this among themselves, and then sooner or later it, it you know kind of percolated out of this narrow group of pirates and into the larger world of the internet on Napster and later stuff like Kazaa and LimeWire, much of which was seeded by these CD leakers, but especially Del Glover. You know, I remember something like 2000
4: CDs. I remember, you know? uh, I tried, see, I, I'm, I'm just still old school. Like I, I, I feel comfortable paying on iTunes. I feel it's right. like my duty to pay for music. But, but I remember going on Kazaa and, and that stuff when it came out and it just, to me just didn't sound good and it was very cumbersome and
5: uh yeah i think i think there's a generation gap there right too i'm so i'm 38 i was born in 1979 True. and i was on in college i got to college in 1997 and discovered rampant mp3 piracy the people I know, even people who are just a couple years older than that, people who were born in 77 or 76, there's a huge shift there where they never really participated in it. And they were really, in the in the compact disc and vinyl era, they ended up being the buyers and they never came over. But people after 79, especially 80, 81, 82, just They stopped buying records, I think. Uh, I think they just pirated uh, for a certain period of time. And it was seen as almost kind of like an antique form of patronage that you would go in a record store and purchase something.
4: Right. Well, Once again, uh, this is Stephen Witt. His book is How Music Got Free, The End of an Industry, The Turn of the Century, and the Patient Zero Piracy. So now that we're talking about that, let's shift to Doug Morris, the industry giant who is an equally fascinating character. Um, another guy who, you know, he was, he kind of bounced around the music industry for years and then hit it big in the mid-90s with st- stuff like Rico Suave, right? And, and, <laughs> Originally Rico yeah. Suave. Yeah. His story was basically Morris's story. I mean, he was on I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I, I found it interesting because you brought up Zeppelin and you brought up the physical graffiti, yeah. how... You know the beauty of the that because that's one of my favorite albums of all time, and the beauty mm-hmm. of that al- that double album, and just chock full of great music is over. And right. you know, here's Morris, who actually worked with Zeppelin towards the end of their career, and, and you mentioned Stevie Nicks and her her uh, right. substances that went up her nose. But then, it, so he he kind of was like middle of the road with those acts, but then he just really propelled himself with something like Rico Suave. Go, go on. You know, he he, he had always – Zeppelin in some
5: ways his was an anomaly because he had always worked closer to the pop end of uh, the charts. Right. Basically his life story is he was recruited by Ahmed Erdogan, the legendary head of Atlantic Records, in the mid-'70s to run Atlantic's uh, in, in-house imprints. And that included both Swan Song, which was Led Zeppelin. Uh, Rolling Stones Records, and then I think he, I think Bad Company was the other one. Um, and so those were kind of his big three in, in the late 70s. As that kind of collapsed towards the 80s, I think he found himself in a place where he, he knew he had to change along with the rest of the industry. Corporate life suited him very well much more so than the average record executive emerging from kind of the more free-form 70s into the more kind of corporate, straight-laced, disciplined 80s. He found actually that that was a good environment for him. So after putting out stuff like Led Zeppelin, he started putting out kind of more pop-oriented stuff Uh, in excess. He did a lot of Phil Collins albums. And he kept rising, and this stuff sold very well, which made people like him, even though kind of musically there was a lot of questions about whether or not it was good. I actually think a lot of it was good, but I'm sure your listeners will have varying opinions about that. By the 90s, I think it had started to become clear to him that rock was kind of spinning its wheels and that something new was on the horizon. And this is a 55-year-old, 60-year-old white guy from Long Island. Yeah. But I think he said to himself, rap is big. It's going to be bigger than anyone can imagine. And we have to lay the groundwork now at Time Warner, at my, at my labels, at my imprints, to dominate it in the future. And so that started out with cheesy stuff like Rico Suave, if you remember that. But then he quickly signed Dr. Dre. He quickly signed... Uh, you know, Snoop Dogg at one point. He signed Tupac Shakur. And so by the and then ultimately signed Eminem and 50 Cent. So by the mid-90s, already his plan was working. And by the turn of the millennium, he was controlling something like 70% of all rap music that got bought in America.
4: Which was absolutely huge, obviously. Which
5: was absolutely yeah. yeah. so much money too. And then, by the yeah. way, this is the height of the compact disk era. Sure. So now in the late nineties, they're making more money than ever before now at the same time uh, in terms of revenue at the same time they're consolidating all of the labels into kind of bigger conglomerates and pushing all the manufacturing into kind of like very low cost um, uh, jurisdictions like for example North Carolina where Del Glover the, the CD leaker, worked so ultimately what happened is the more acts that Morris brought under his umbrella the more music that Del Glover, the pirate, could leak. So Del Glover ended up kind of leaking all rap music for a long time, and as um, you know, labels like Universal and Time Warner moved into you know, hard rock and other country and other arenas as well, uh, he was able to leak that. Yeah. By 2004, 2005, uh, the group he belonged to was leaking probably 80% of all recorded music that came out in the United States. Uh, You know, weeks, sometimes months ahead of of when it was supposed to come out. Once they leaked it, it made its way onto those file servers very quickly. So if you had some music on your iPod that you didn't know where it came from in the mid-2000s, it probably went through this one group and probably this one guy.
4: So, again, I I don't want to give too much away on the book because I want to make sure everyone (laughs) listening buys this book because right. it's just fascinating. If you're a music fan, whether you like uh, metal, death metal, punk, anything, you sh- you got to read this book. Um, right. Now, Morris, Doug Morris, kind of becomes a dinosaur, albeit a extremely wealthy dinosaur. But towards the end of the book, he makes quite a significant move in the digital age as well to make even more of a windfall.
5: Right. He invented this service called Vivo, uh, and then he kind of was very early into Spotify as well. Yeah. So, you know, the funny thing, piracy really hurt these guys. There's no question about that. But what ultimately killed them was not piracy, because if you look today— Piracy has declined a lot. The industry, the recorded music industry, has not totally recovered. The live music industry is doing quite well, but the recorded industry, music, uh, uh, music industry, has not really recovered. And one of the things that happened was the disaggregation of the MP3 single from the album. Right. So when Steve Jobs came along and 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 sort of said, "Well, I have this iTunes Store," he convinced Morris and all of the other record executives to sign on. Well, that arguably was a mistake for them because it allowed the consumer to buy just their favorite song as opposed to their whole album. So if you think of like, think about Rico Suave, for example, perfect example, total just one hit wonder, this guy Gerardo, but he sold over a million albums, okay, albums yeah. at, at 12, 13 bucks a pop based on that one kind of crappy, almost almost a novelty song, right? Well, if that comes out today, they're not making anywhere near that kind of money. They right. can't sell an album based on a single anymore. And that has historically been their model, and they still can't do it. And that's one of the things that makes sort of ongoing the record industry. It's just much more challenging than it used to be.
4: Yeah, and you, you do you do make that a major point in the book, which is yeah. How Music Got Free uh, by Stephen Witt. Um, Stephen, what's the best way for people to get your book?
5: Um, You know, I don't really have a preference.
4: You can go to your favorite small bookstore. You can buy it from your favorite
5: enormous large online retailer. Sure. Or you can pirate it. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
4: come on now! I'm not <laughs> going to tell you how. <laughs> I'm not right. going to promote that. No, 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 no. You, you can. Uh, I, it's all the it. major. Don't I mean, I, I have a comment. <laughs> yeah. So I. I. Uh, I mean. Yeah, you can obviously find it on Amazon. Um, I found it at a huge bookstore. Um, you can also yep. download it on iTunes and all the other. Uh, all the. Yeah, and there's also an audiobook <laughs> edition. So, okay. so
5: if you want to hear me read it, that's available. Yeah. Um, you know and then for if there's any foreign listeners it's it's in most foreign markets in translation as well that's, so that,
4: that's it's up there yeah again yeah. I, I said you know there are time, I, I think there were three times during this book where i had to take pause and say this is not a novel this is actually happening or actually <laughs> happened so you know i want to finish up our interview what do you think the value in music is right now
3: uh
4: you mean well, value for profit, and, the business yeah value for profit or, uh, and the business value because there's still you know towards the end of the book there's still a big battle over money and who's going to split right. the pie. The,
5: the recorded music industry is, I think, they're at a permanently lowered state of profitability. I, in some ways, the album era was an anomaly uh, because of the reason that I gave. They were able to bundle all of these. Out, you know, sell all these albums in a forced bundling mode uh, based on the on the strength of one or two hit singles, right. and they just can't do that anymore. For the same reason that the newspaper industry is struggling, because you used to have to buy the whole newspaper with all that advertising and stuff, and now you can just kind of break the articles off piecemeal and, and read only exactly what you want.
3: Exactly.
5: There's no way to fix that. There's no there's no going back to the old model. Yeah. So I think streaming provides probably great opportunities. There's no way to force the consumer to buy a bunch of songs that they're not going to listen to. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, And that, that moving from kind of that chunky distribution model to a more sleek streaming efficient one is, is in some ways great for the music consumer. It costs them a lot less uh, and they get to everything that they want, but it's bad for the producers. They just can't make as much money as they used to. Now, there's you know, this explosive kind of live market, the festival circuit. There's other ways to make money. Sure. You know, and the economists who look at this theorize that well, people kind of have a fixed entertainment budget. So if they're spending less
4: on compact discs, maybe they'll spend more on live music, and that definitely seemed to be true. Um, Yeah, and that's why you you see all these big dinosaur – the bands we like going on these huge tours, still making profit, but – So much money. Yeah. So much money. Well, it's harder – it's interesting because, uh, you know, I like metal. I listen to a
5: lot of it, but it's not – once, you know, Metallica kind of winds down, there's not some band that's coming up next that's going to be selling out arena tours. That's – you know, that's over, I think, uh, with with that generation.
4: Yeah, and that ties into – you know. A lot of our uh, – you'll find a lot of us, our gateway band was KISS. And, right. And Gene Simmons is very vocal about this too and he says rock is dead and a lot of it – rock is dead is because of the subject you address in your book. But they are a band but that, I um, No, I think he's yeah. wrong. I, I agree. I yeah. think that rock is – if not dead. At least it's certainly not
5: what it used to be. Right. I don't think it's because of music piracy. I think that – I mean those things happened at the same time but I don't think that's why. I think what actually happened was that, as an instrument, the electric guitar had just come to its natural conclusion. There wasn't that much new or interesting you could do. Meanwhile, all of these kids of the next generation in the 90s started to pirate basically all of the sophisticated song sequencing software, like Ableton Live and stuff, so where you used to have to need a $100,000 Kind of sound booth uh, recording and production setup to to be a producer. Suddenly the tools to do that were in everyone's hands, and so the 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 kind of um, focus of what a good musician looked like changed from the kind of guitar god model of the of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even to a little extent the 90s, and went to the kind of studio production guru. And that is what we hear today. That's why music has changed so much. I don't think it's because
4: of piracy. Yeah. Well well put. Stephen, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Once again, it's Stephen Witt. His book is How Music Got Free, uh, The End of an Industry, The Turn of a Century, and the Patient Zero of Piracy. Stephen, thanks for joining us. This is Joe Becht reporting for Mark Striegel and Talking Metal. And have a great day. So that was my interview with Stephen Witt, a uh, fascinating book. I I really recommend everyone, if you're a music fan, period, you need to read this book and uh, discover how the music industry is where it's at.
2: Yeah, you know, one thing you guys, I think, spoke about during the interview, um, it was a, a couple weeks ago, I listened to it. But you, you're talking about the CD and how this technology was was basically on there, that, that the, the music was in a digital format. So the 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 whole idea of people ripping these CDs and stuff when when they were first being produced in the mid 80s wasn't really a concern of the labels but in retrospect there should have been some sort of lock put in place to uh prevent people from from ripping the CDs right exactly yeah, it, and why, c- why didn't they then? When when MP3 started becoming popular, was it too late to try to go back and in, install that technology? I, th- I think it was just
4: more they were shortsighted. They were making they were still making so much money that uh, they didn't really they kind of were behind the eight ball on what was happening. And this pirate industry was was coming uh, up and coming. And, you know, the rap artists that are mentioned in here were still selling millions of records, but. Guys were, um, you know, this guy was getting these CDs out of the factory and, and releasing it prematurely, and it was going out there, and eventually, you know, people were able to get these files. So it kind of just accumulated, and, and guys are behind the 8th ball. And um, like I said, they, they, they stopped Napster, but they really lost the battle when they couldn't stop the MP3 player.
3: Yeah. And it's,
4: when you had you know, so now, you know, now you got this device and it is I, honestly, you know, it's great having something in the, my whole record collection that used to take up an entire room is in the palm of my hand that I could put in my car. Remember, you know, you used to have had tons of tapes or CDs now, you know, so it's pretty cool. But the fact that, you you know, you can go out and just get this stuff for free and then and, and pick and choose singles now. Yeah. And there's no more, uh, you know, you buying albums,
2: but you know, you know, there's, there's this, and this isn't going to be the popular opinion that I, I think a lot of our listeners probably have, but it's something I think about a lot. There's this kind of romance tale that I hear so many people say over and over again uh, about the, the good old days when, when bands put out full albums and you could listen to the album from start to finish. But, the way I remember it was yeah sure there there throughout my lifetime there've been a lot there've been you know I I'll say a lot of albums by Kiss and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Iron Maiden and Metallica that I could put the needle on and then flip the you know listen to side one then flip it over listen to side two all the way through but there were also even more albums that I bought when I was a kid where I just kept lifting the needle up and playing the same song over and over again because there was one good song on the record and the rest of the album sucked, you know. And and Thank that you. that's the reality. When you look back, it, it, to me, sure, those great albums by those great bands uh, are the ones you remember. But in general there there weren't a lot of those uh, i mean i'm uh, you know uh, let me tell you when i bought icon i bought the whole freaking record but there was one <laughs> song i listened to on right that. the hurricane no. the same thing i mean i could go on and on uh right. about with these bands i mean even even yeah, you know, I don't want to trash too many bands right now, but there's other bands where you know that first Vinnie Vincent record. Yeah, I loved I loved side one, and I loved one song off of side two, but the rest of it I didn't listen to that much, you know. And so you know, I, I, you I, know so I can't get. Through. I listen to Vinnie Vincent. I can't. I I laugh every time because the
4: guitar playing is so outrageous. But anyway, uh, you know you know what I don't miss. Now the albums were beautiful. The artwork. You know you, the gatefolds, you knew who the band members were who produced the album, everything. I don't miss the pops, the scratches. That stuff would drive me crazy. Right. And, and you know, it, it sounds crazy, but I didn't want to go out you know, I, I remember when I had Van, I was the first guy in the block that had the Van Halen album. Everybody in the block wanted to borrow it. Someone scratched it. And I'm like, shit, I gotta buy another copy. And, you know, back then I, yeah, sure, but you know, to spend $11, $12 again really sucked to be in eighth grade. And I had, you know, my, my Van Halen album was ruined. So, um, I don't miss that at all, but yeah, when they created the CD technology, it it opened up this, uh, this gateway to, uh, being able to download eventually, you know, rip CDs, steal the music. And, uh, it's unfortunate it came to that point, but
2: right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the other question, and I don't know if the book gets into this. You know, I haven't read the book you have, but wh- where do we go from here with, with music? I mean, it, it's it's been devalued. It, you know, people don't like work hard to get it. Even when they steal it, like listen, I used to steal music, but it was a big effort. I would I would you know again get on my fricking bike and take one of, a couple of my records over to my friend's house with cassette tapes remember the Maxell xl right. XL290 you know cassette tapes 45 minutes on each side usually you could fit a full full album on on each side of a, a you know Maxell XL290s and you wanted those type 2s cuz they sounded better than the type 1s but you know I'd go over to my friend's house and and I would let him tape my records we'd sit there in real time record the records and and write out the 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 track titles on the on the the maxell cassette tapes and you know then then he then he'd let me do the same to his so we were stealing music back then but right. but far less of it than than was is going on nowadays and there was, you know, the tape trading and the, the – we used to go to, convent, you know, record conventions. Oh, yeah. uh, I remember this one. I can't remember the town. But we used to always go to this record swap where we'd buy – Hillside. Yeah, Hillside. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep, yep. And it was – was that by the – like, was that by a mall out there or Yeah, it was yeah, the, the
4: first the- mall here in Chicago that's all torn down now. Is it? Both the, both the movie theaters there
2: are churches now. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, we used to go to all that stuff. Yeah, uh, I saw Nightmare on Elm Street at that movie theater, and uh, sure, also Rocky IV. I think I saw over there. But yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, there was so much effort that went on. You know, even even when we did swap tapes or, or not pay for music, there was there was still a big effort that went on, and and I think even that plays into the devaluing of of music in general.
4: I I, I agree, and I think so many different things have gone on recently that have really changed the uh, music industry. You know, the, the the company's paying these huge advances, the bands to take chances. Uh, people, you know, like like my sons, they'll listen to a few songs here and there, but a lot of their money will go to to, to apps on their phone or, or uh, video games. You know, I just remember Aerosmith, off that guitar hero, made more money than you know, half their record collection just off of the C- Guitar Hero video game. So you have things of that nature that are happening. Um, you know, it, there's iTunes, and you're buying music, right? Uh, but you know, it, it's it is single oriented, and yeah, I mean, guitar-driven rock. I, I just wish it would come back. It doesn't seem like I don't know. Everything just seems so. It's not. There's no not that hunger anymore. The big the big pop stars are a lot of the women. Um, you know, you get the Taylor Swift's, the Adele's, but, uh, I don't see like that Motley Crue coming up or that Metallica, these kids, even rap music, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of rap, but I did think that like when public enemy and NWA first came out, it was pretty cutting edge and, and sort of, you know, fit kind of in that heavy metal mode because right. it was so, so hard edged. And even the rap that comes out is just, I don't know. It's just, it, it's flat.
2: Um, Yeah, there's some of it though, to me that I don't understand, like the rap and like some guy with like tattoos all over his face and he's drinking some like you know Nyquil, uh, you know vodka mix or something. To me, like that was the first time, like with uh, some of those guys, I was like, wow, this guy's kind of kind of creepy, you know, like, and I was a little like. Like whoa, what's up with him? And and I was like, ah, so that's the rock star of today because I'm an old dude and I don't get it. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so I I do I do, but but in general, there's nothing there's nothing like like it was, and it's it's definitely a, a different scene. And I guess what I was going earlier was was this idea of where do we go from here? Because I've heard numerous people, in, including um, Brian Slagel of Metal Blade fame, say that, that they believe this whole thing of music being devalued is starting to work itself out and that eventually we're going to get back on course and music is going to start making good money and, and big money again. Was there anything in the book about where, where we end up? Like ten well, years and, down the road, twenty.
4: No, there's nothing, nothing about that. Um, it does, you know, discuss the big battles that they had over, um, you know, who controlled what, what uh, publishing rights and everything. So the, the Doug Morris, the big record executive, he's the guy who he actually was able to, you know, people in the industry made fun of him because he was old school. But he's you know he's a multimillionaire, old school record executive, but he he thought of VIVO on YouTube to actually make money for bands on YouTube. Right. know, um, I heard an interview with Nikki Six uh, a couple months ago, and he was complaining about how the um, royalties from Google off of YouTube are just paltry. And I believe someone else said something like that too. And and it's it's unfortunate. Maybe you know if they can possibly get. Better royalties from you know companies like Google. I know Apple. I think Apple compensates the artists fairly, um, but yeah, I, I I I do tend to agree with Brian though. I just feel it's got to come back right. because it's 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 an art form um, and and it's needed.
2: Right. Well, and I'll, I'll yeah. just kind of I'm all over the place here, but to circle back you know you mentioned iTunes paying the the artists uh, a little better but the problem that you know back in the day that the labels had with with Steve Jobs and what he wanted to do was he he was he was very much against any of these artists you know having you uh forcing you and some of the artists got away with it the bigger ones but he was very much against them forcing you to buy the whole album and right. so so that was a killer that was yeah. that was definitely a killer and yeah. and that hurt the music industry and they caved to to Steve Jobs who was really the guy who wanted people to just be able to buy these single downloads and you know what happened was when a certain artist would force you to buy the whole album some of the bigger artists again would get away from that they just wouldn't sell cuz people wouldn't do it and then they'd go to the you know was the next Napster. What what was the big like uh file uh, file sharing? Yeah, they go there and they 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 just steal it because they didn't want to pay 10 bucks right. for the record. And and you know the, the the again it's it's back to my whole thing where it's like I believe the record company, you know, from the late 60s through whatever 2000, they were forcing us to buy a lot of records that didn't have uh, a a full album's worth of good material on them. And, and, I mean, I, I worked at VH1. I got a lot of free records back in the day, but I also would go buy a lot of records, and there's just, I mean, I look back at those grunge bands. I mean, there were so many of them, not, not the big ones, but uh, the, kind of the second tier grunge bands, where I would go buy the album, and there was, like, one good song on there, you know, the Offspring, I remember them. I used to like like a handful of their songs, but I ended up buying, exactly. like, four of their records for probably, like, four of their songs, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do think there was, you know, some greed and ignorance, obviously on on the labels, and in a lot of ways they they brought this upon themselves. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Cool. Well, en- enough on that. We will have links up to the the book in the show notes today on Talking Metal. And right now, I want to get into our interview with with Parr from the band sabaton here on talking metal uh, we're going to check out a song called the last battalion and then we'll get into the interview and we'll come back and talk some more with our co-host joe today here we go this is sabaton followed by my interview with their bassist par 1918 the great war is on our battalion is lost
6: There's nothing they can do There's no way they can get a message through Suffer heavy losses As the battle carries on Liberty division standing Stand to god in demand. They would never comply. They would never die.
3: But through the blockade, they were finally saved.
6: Friendly fire, munitions rocketing below, the supplies, they were dropped upon their own. Not to surrender, they chose victory or defeat All the brothers resting by their feet on from land as they made their stand A disregard in demand They surrender or die and the stakes are high They live or they die, there's no time for goodbye Weapon in hand as they made their stand Still disregarded in demand
2: Hey, this is Mark Striegel of Talking Metal and calling in from San Francisco, Par Sundström from the band Sabaton. How are you, Par?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Except for a cold I've been carrying around for the last, uh, I don't know, week and a half, two weeks or something. We got, there's several of us in the touring companies got one, but it's getting there. I mean, no matter which tour we're doing, we always get some kind of stuff. to one or two or a couple of the members so I I still cope with it
2: Do you you find when you're out on the road that it's it's harder to heal and and get rid of a cold does it hang with you longer?
1: (laughs) I I don't know I mean uh, the last years I've been on the road constantly so I do get sick like everybody else I guess possibly uh, more rarely than a lot of people but I still do get call, uh, sick, so but it's just to cope with it, you know. Right. We, we can't call in sick. We right. we got a special little kind of uh, work where we don't call in sick.
2: Right on. And I know now you guys are out touring. You had an album that came out last year which we'll talk about. But uh you're you're in North America now and you are doing a pretty extensive tour of, of the states and I believe some Canadian dates too. Um how are the North American crowds?
1: It's great. Uh, it it's doing super well everywhere and we're having so much nice people in the crowd every day and cool. Yeah, we are. We're enjoying
2: and do you notice a big difference between crowds, say, in, in Europe or other parts of the world than than, than you do in, in North America? How, do, how does the North American crowd compare to, say, the European crowd?
1: You can't really compare it like that. Like, there is a difference between Europe and and North America. North America is very big, and uh, it, it's like, it's it just, <laughs> you can't compare. Uh, compare the two but one thing is for sure and that is like it is a great crowd in north america and it's growing and the interest for our kind of music seems to be growing which is great so yeah uh we are we're just enjoying it and i would never want to compare crowds from around the world like that
2: right right on and now when you say your style of music one term that a lot of time gets gets stuck on you guys is is power metal is that a term you embrace do you like being considered power metal i know some bands don't want to be pigeonholed into into you know one genre of metal how, how do you feel about the power metal term
1: it's quite misleading uh because the two main things you think about when you hear power metal, they will be um uh, first they will be high-pitched vocals so secondary. The fantasy themes and lyrics, and we have none of those. So the two lead themes of the typical power mail has nothing to do with Sabaton. Right. So I think that the term is misleading. I always say we're a heavy mail band.
2: Right on, right on. And you guys are in San Francisco tonight, and I know you're going to be hitting Texas on May eighteenth. Uh, May twentieth is Tampa, Florida. May 21st, North Carolina, and May 22nd, you're in Maryland, and I believe that ends the the North American tour. What's up for you guys after the North American tour?
1: We go back to uh, Europe, where we have a lot of uh, festivals waiting for us, uh, which we will go through in the summer, and for the autumn, we have some plans which we haven't revealed yet, but... Uh we we have a plan for the autumn and for the winter and actually also for next year, but there is a lot of things of that I cannot talk about at the moment.
2: Okay. And you guys do your own festival too, right?
1: Yeah, in August. We have been it's ten years anniversary this year and uh uh yeah.
2: Cool. And where does that actually take place?
1: It's taking place in our hometown Fallon. uh and uh, we started it Ten years ago and it's been growing and uh, it's been like it's so great we have over the years we have been able to invite a lot of uh, bands we grew up listening to uh, bands that uh, we are fans of friends of and to put on a festival and be able to do that it's an amazing feeling
2: absolutely now you you mentioned you know the fan base growing and you guys you guys aren't a brand new band. You've been around a, a long time and in, is it do you see general growth like over the years or is there definitely like an acceleration like of of the
1: growth of the fan base within the last few years? It depends on territories, but if you look at for example North America where we've been quite intensely supporting other bands the last year, uh it's really paid off and now you can see Kind of crowd we are pulling into the show right so that, uh, that's the that but it has to i mean it's it's nothing strange if you do something faster it will go faster if you do something more it will you know you will reach the end if you drive 30 with a car of 50 of course if you drive 50 you will get to the destination faster and we're a band that drives at a very high speed we work very hard
2: right on right on now the album that you guys put out back in 2016 is the last stand it's a concept record and it's a very cool concept each song deals with uh, a, a battle from history and, you know, there's, there's the, for example, The Last Battalion, which is a, about a World War One battle. And I mean, every song deals with a battle basically on the album. And so are, are you, I'm assuming that you or somebody else in the band is, is a, is a true student of history and, and studies, you know, global history is, is, is that the case with, with you and all the band members or is it certain band members?
1: No, it's not the true with any band member that no. we are studying history actively. No. We are a female band first and foremost. Right. But we decided we want to sing about something that really matters, something that's from the real world instead of making up things. And uh, then there are all the great stories. We don't actively study and travel around and read the whole history around the world. We would have zero time for doing a single show in a year if we would be doing that for right. full time. So uh, when it comes to us, writing an album we have so many ideas and we dig too and and we start doing a little bit research on the themes the themes and the specific topics that we decide for that specific album right but we don't do full research it wouldn't be possible there there are historic professors who spend their whole lives digging into things like that and we are after all touring and doing metal
2: Absolutely. Cool. And, you know, like I mentioned, the band has been around a a while at this point when you're one of the original founding members of, of the band. When you look back on your career with Sabaton, what are some of the career highlights for you?
1: there are several career highlights of us, uh, one of them being when we first uh, were recorded the song Prima Victoria, and we all felt like that this will be a game changer for us or to say this will be a a possibility for us to do something about the band, something real we we had no idea how far it would take us uh, when we had uh, just done that uh, song, but we knew that it is. It's like competing with world touring bigger bands than us. By then, that was a big achievement, which gave us confidence to pretty much uh, put all effort we could towards the band. So that was uh, definitely a highlight of our uh, career. And uh, there's been several of them uh, over the years. And of course, to to tour with Iron Maiden, to tour with the Scorpions, to tour with such bands, and the headline, the biggest festivals in the world, yeah, that's kind of goals all of them. And over the years, we have seen many of the goals we set up when we started. We have seen them, we have done them, and we constantly set new ones.
2: Right on. And you guys have played a lot of the, the real big metal festivals throughout the world. What, what's the biggest festival, attendance-wise, that you've ever played?
1: We were the headlines of a festival in Poland with half a million people. Wow. Wow that's insane that's
2: insane and and yeah. is when when you're playing say a smaller venue and you're playing a festival like that is what do you have to have a different approach to how you deliver your show just as as an artist
1: yes um, When you are playing for so many people you play mostly to cameras right. because the majority of the people will be watching cam screens oh, interesting so that's uh you have to speak a little bit different because you have to make the people who watch a screen to feel like they are part of the show too. You have to make them feel that they are almost on the stage. You have to invite the cameras. And that's, um, um, yeah, you, it's a little bit strange because you get no feedback from a camera. So that's the main difference. You're When you're playing and you have five guys at the front that you get a connection with and they scream at you and they laugh with you and they uh, and you have a connection during the whole show, that's one thing, but you will never get a connection with the camera, you get zero feedback. So you just have to to give and take nothing, so right to on. say.
2: Right on, and, and Par, what kind of gear do you use? What kind of bass guitar do you play?
1: I play custom ESP uh, guitars uh, for the basses, and uh, I have my own custom uh, setup for them. Um, and then every guitar player, including me, plays Kemper. It's like an amp profiler. It's uh,
3: right. not real
1: amplification. It's computers that generates the kind of uh, guitar sounds that we want.
2: And when you use a a a, a thing like like the Kemper, do you, do you run it through an amp or is it going like directly into the PA in the live it's setting? It's going
1: directly into the PA. Wow! Wow! Very cool, very
2: cool, and you know the the last record again, not even a year old, two thousand sixteen. Is there? It's probably too early, I guess, for talk of any new music at this point. Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, you're right on that. I mean, for sure, uh, we are always thinking about what we can do in the future. But seeing that we just put out a new album and we've been touring so intensely since, we are not really at the moment planning a new album like that. Right,
2: I got you And The Last Stand is the album The great concept album That we've been talking about uh, I'd love to play a track To take us out here, Par Off of that album What would you recommend we play For the Talking Metal listeners?
1: I think the title track uh, We didn't do it as a single and uh, But still a lot of people Really appreciate it
2: This is The Last Stand by Sabaton Thanks, Par We really appreciate you Talking with us tonight Thank you. you just heard was the title track off the last sabaton record which came out less than a year ago late late august 2016 was when it was released that song there was called the last stand go support these guys when they come through your town check them out also definitely go purchase their music and joe thanks so much for for being with us on this episode definitely fun talking about music with you and i hope we didn't bore People too much talking about the uh, the obscure uh, bands of the Chicago rock scene of uh, the eighties. Yeah, was,
4: that was fun stuff. Chicago had a great scene, definitely. It really,
2: it really yeah. did. It really did. And yeah. uh, you know, I, I wish I, I wish I could have experienced more of it because you know and all those bands that i used to see that i i just mentioned at the beginning of this episode i will say and this is something i always come back to that that those were suburban places and suburban bands they they weren't bands from the inner city of of chicago uh, and right. i always i always kind of you know you mentioned downers grove is that where you grew up Downers up? No,
4: I grew up. I grew up in Berwyn. Oh, Berwyn. So okay, close yeah. To the city, mentioned. right?
2: Yeah, but but I always felt that metal, especially in the New York area, it, it, it was much more of you know a working class uh, type of thing where it, it wasn't as big. Like like you know the people in in New York City and Manhattan. They the Andy Warhol crowd they got the art rock and right. stuff, and they even kind of yes. embraced the the punk rock scene but but you know metal was never big in the on the island of of Manhattan it just never was, but yet out in the Jersey suburbs in Long Island in the Chicago suburbs, even in some of the outer boroughs you know Brooklyn and Staten Island, this is where it really thrived and do you you know, you you experienced the Chicago scene back in the day more than I did. Do you, do you feel that that was the case with with Chicago? Was it bigger in the suburbs?
4: Uh, most definitely. So, you know, just back to I just you know, you talk about New York. When I think of like Manhattan, I think of Ramones, Velvet Underground. But when you think of Long Island, and New Jersey, I think of Twisted Sister coming up in the clubs. So that just you know confirms what you just said. But here in Chicago, um, yeah, the, I mean so Hammeron was basically in the city. I mean, you know, it was on, like West side of a uh, Northwest side of Chicago. Uh, Z trope was a city band, but all the other bands you mentioned were uh, based in the suburbs. In fact, trouble was all the way out in Aurora, wow. which is wow. about, you know, 40, 40, miles outside of the city. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting because uh, the, one of the biggest bands to come out of Chicago was, of course, smashing pumpkins. And while they're not a metal band, they do have a heavy side to them. And he was influenced by a lot of heavy metal. And I remember going to a Jane's Addiction on their first tour. They played the Metro uh, across the street from Wrigley Field. Yep. And we, we see this band called Smashing Pumpkins and they were God awful.
3: Yeah.
4: And then yep. about, you know, six months later, my friend comes over with their first album and plays it. And it was, you know, it, that that's heavy stuff. Yep. And they were a suburban band too. You know, he grew up in Glendale Heights so, uh, I, yeah, definitely the suburbs seem to have spurned more of a, of a metal and hard rock, uh, genre.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And, and on that note, let's, let's, uh, let's get into some more music here and then we'll, uh, come back and definitely wrap it up. What do you want to play, Joe? You suggested something earlier to me. Yeah.
4: So when I, I was exchanging emails with you, I, I know you
2: see loudness.
4: And I love Loudness's first couple albums that were Japanese imports, you know, and the fact you had to go and do the record store and had the Japanese writing on them and they sing in Japanese. So my favorite song by Loudness is called Mr. Yes Man. It's a perfect cross of Van Halen and Rush. Cool. And it's a beautiful song. So.
2: Yeah, we'll check it out now on Talking Metal. You, you may have cut out a bit there on Skype, but I think you were saying I was excited to see them at M3, which is correct, and they didn't end up yes. playing. Uh, we'll, we'll hear a little loudness right now, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, loudness in and M3 and, and kind of just quickly wrap things up. So here we go, a little loudness on Talking Metal. What you just heard was Loudness on Talking Metal, a band that was slated, I think, to start the tour in Chicago out by you. They got to, I'm guessing, O'Hare Airport out there, and they were denied entry to the the country and sent sent back, uh, which they were here recently in recent years, so obviously... um, Something changed, uh, and they were unable to get into the country. And yeah, I, I, you know, I was really bummed that they weren't going to play M three. However, I, I still ended up having a, a great time at the M three festival. We just wrapped up our coverage on episode six six seven and six six eight. If you haven't heard them, go back and check them out. Um, but uh, have you have you ever been to M three, Joe, or any interest in M three? No, but I uh, after.
4: Hearing these interviews, I really want to make it out there and and see it now.
2: Yeah, it's it's you know kind of kind of circling back to what we were talking about earlier. It it, it was such a great event, and like, it's not the super heavy thrash bands. And I know, like, you know, if if you're not into the more commercial hard rock and glam bands, I I hate the term, but you know, hair hair bands. Um, If you're not into those, you might not really dig M3. But I, I am into all that stuff, uh, and I, I just thought it was such a great event. It's like a destiny, the destination that people come to from all over the place. There were very few people I spoke with at the festival that told me they were from, you know, Maryland, where the festival was, and uh, you know, it's it's also interesting because you know Rat got up and headlined the the final the, it's, the it's middle. Awesome which was great. I was always a big Rat fan. The set list was just great. A lot of kind of off the beaten path gems in the set list, as well as all the big hits that you'd expect. And, you know, and I I was just uh, had the time of my life while they were playing, but, you know, you look around and at a festival like that, and even though a band like Rat who might play in New Jersey, I, I doubt they could get 2000 people, even with the, the one, Percy Warren lineup. I, I I would be shocked if they got two thousand people to to a show. Um, right. Maybe if it was like a triple bill or something, they could probably do that. But you know, the here at yeah. M three, they had like I'm guessing it was like you know twelve 000 to fifteen thousand people there. Um,
4: really. Now what? So
2: where in Maryland is it exactly? It's Columbia, Maryland. It's about forty five minutes outside of Baltimore. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know, I guess like west of Baltimore, I'm not sure. But it was, uh, yeah, and, and so it was really a, a great, great event. Um, you know, however, the the one thing you look at the, out at the crowd and, and, and you know, I kept, couldn't help but thinking, you know, these old guys on stage, all these old people in the audience, you know, right. all, all obviously, you know. <clears throat> a lot of them kind of, you know, chubby and, and bald and, you know, and stuff. I mean, and, and, and it, like, if, if I were, if I were, a, if I were a young kid, I don't think it would really be my scene, you know, to want to come rock out with a bunch of old people no. and the, the, the rebellion no. in a lot of ways is gone. And I, I feel like all the thousands of people that were there, were all reliving something that meant a lot to us at one time in our life, and we're enjoying reliving it. But, you know, it's, it's back to the question, how do we get these young kids into guitars and, and vo- loud yeah. volume and, and good, good rock and roll? I mean, is there any hope? Well, it, it's
4: interesting because I have three sons. My oldest is 21. Uh, my middle guy is 18. My youngest is 15. And they do like some rock. So, like, my 15-year-old, he's, I'm taking him the tool um, in next awesome. month. Yeah, And he, he loved him and his friend love Tool, but they listen to other, no, they don't, you know, they listen to other types of music as well. Um, but you like, you know, my my older sons will listen to some Black Sabbath. My actually my 18 year old went to go see Black Sabbath because he likes, you know, some of their, their more popular songs and, you know, they'll listen to some Maiden. so I think if it's good and it's classic, they'll they'll listen to it. Um, that's what I've noticed. And, you know, a lot of now you hear a lot of these songs on commercials. Um, and so they know it from there. Yeah. But I'll catch, I'll catch my you know, I'll catch my son. He'll listen. You know, he looks into the hip hop and, and some of this other stuff that I can't stand. But I'll catch him listening to Zeppelin once in a while. Cool. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and, and also the the country scene seems to have slotted itself into a lot of the hard rock so it seems like a lot, you know, in Nashville is like the epicenter for music now. It's no longer Hollywood. Right. So it seems like the country movement has now um, taken a lot of that audience to the younger audience. Yeah,
2: it just seems so, like, bland to me. I mean, you know, like, yeah, the, no, the country I, I stuff and I, yeah. just so packaged and, <laughs> and what's his what's Wal- his name? Walmart friendly, you know, it's just. Yeah, the guy from um, who's the guy from Australia, the really
4: big country artist. Who's married to the? ad. Urban is that his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's a he. he was a metalhead. He was in an Iron Maiden tribute band or something. Wow. And that, was he? he wow. went, yeah, he went. He went. He, he went in the country and made millions. So that's that's where it's at. And Everybody's in Nashville now. Yeah, because that's where the music scene is. Yep, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So so uh, uh, the Chicago Open Air is coming here um, in July, and I'm going to go to day one and day three for sure. Uh, day one has anthrax megadeth rob zombie and kiss on that bill wow Day three has slayer and ozzy now with uh zach wild on back on guitar so i will definitely uh be writing a report if you want to do a show about it uh we can talk about that too but cool. uh, yeah, i'm excited when is that when when is that happening that's going to be uh, i believe around july the uh, july 15th it's a whole weekend Okay, so cool. it's a friday Saturday, sunday yeah
2: Cool, because I'm yeah. seeing Zach with Blasco on base uh, in in less than two weeks. Actually, like actually, probably be right around the time I finally get this episode posted uh, with Zach Sabbath. Which, uh, oh yeah, know, I, I just because he was doing that with Blasco, who Blasco's really tied in, not only as is, is Ozzy's band. Director, but also with Ozzy's management company and stuff. I, I just I had a feeling Zach was coming back, you know, and and I think it's the right move. I think it's it's great in this post Sabbath world that Do you think there's
4: any chance that they'll play
2: Stillborn? Oh, uh, I I would say no because okay, I you know? I know that that I remember an interview with Ozzy right around when when Zach either left or right before he left, where Ozzy was kind of talking bad about black label society, and he was expressing a frustration with all the, the, the you know, Zach was kind of become his own thing. And, you know, I, I I remember it was a really weird interview. I was like, oh, wow, he doesn't he doesn't like that Zach is, you know, that the black label thing is kind of blowing up. Um, I mean, I don't think that's why they booted him. I think it was because Ozzy didn't want somebody who, who drank around him. But I, I do think it could have possibly played into it, um, partially, sure. but, uh, yeah. Okay. So, so, uh, tool, um, you know, you, you, mentioned, I, I just, a lot of people on, on the podcast uh, who listen to this podcast are sometimes, uh, surprised to hear that that's one of my favorite bands. I mean, really post eighties, that's one of my favorite bands. If not my favorite band, I have seen them all over the country, traveled all over the place to see them play. Uh, really, yeah. And, and, uh, I'm excited to hear that your son is is digging them and you're gonna check them out. And I think we should end with some some tool music here on the podcast. Uh any any ideas what we should play? Okay,
4: so I had the song to pick because I my fandom of Tool went in reverse when Ten Thousand Days came out, or I think that's the name of the album. I fell in love with the song The Pot. If you could play that. And then from there, I got into the whole album, and then I backtracked into the catalog, and now I'm a huge fan. So when they were big, and when they first came out in the 90s, I listened to them. They were good. But now I just love them because of the song The Pot. So if you could play that, that'd be great.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. And I've always said one of the best shows I've ever seen um, was Tool at Roseland in 19… 96. I saw him at Roseland twice. It was the second time I saw him there that I, I just walked out of there and it... It was like a, a spiritual awakening. I was just like, wow, that was, that was something else, what I just witnessed. And great band, great players, not really traditional metal, not really traditional anything. They kind of got their own thing going on. But anyways, we'll end with a little tool here today on Talking Metal. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. We'll have your My Twitter friend. account linked through today's show notes on Talking Metal, which is also where we have the Amazon links that you guys use, and I appreciate that, and please continue to, to do that.
4: Yeah, go, go to Amazon. Designed by Stephen Witt's book through the uh, website.
2: Yes, we'll have yep. a link up that goes directly to his book. So definitely yep. do that, and uh, yeah, that'll do it. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Who are you to wave your
3: finger? You must have been out your head. I hold deep in muddy waters. You're practically. Raised.